Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. Whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Nope, I did not select this passage for today, and would not have were it up to me. I want to begin with a word from Ben Franklin in his Poor Richard's Almanac It was included. This little piece titled, A Little Neglect Can Breed Great Mischief. You've probably heard it. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. Ripple effect, you see? Like pebbles in a pond, you've all done it. We've all done it before. Do little things matter? You know they do. Ever had a toothache? Pretty small. It will put you down. Ever stubbed your little toe on the bedpost in the middle of the night? That tiny little thing will put you out of commission. The most deadly creature of all God's creation on the planet is not the lion or the snake or the hippopotamus or any such as that, but the tiny mosquito many, many times over that throughout history takes the lives of way more people than any other critter. Mother Teresa said, 
maybe in a more positive way of looking, you can do no great thing, only, only small things with great love. And while there are great things, I think that we have experienced and seen them and we'll see them again, overwhelmingly what makes life great, what we experience in the day-to-day realities of our lives, are that the little things are what matter, especially kindnesses given and received, little things, not huge, but little things when all put together with all of us being about that matter immensely. In our parable today, Jesus says, whoever is faithful in little is faithful in much. Now let me tell you and digress a bit. It kind of shocked me when I thought about the timing on this, but when I was in my first year of seminary at Gettysburg, which was 40 years ago, and which by the way, thank you St. John's for helping support me prayerfully and financially even way back then and for all the ways in which you continue to pay forth the gospel of people who don't necessarily ever serve in this place but spread it out like dandelion seeds or maybe something better than dandelions to the wind, you know, so that it might um, perpetuate and spread. In that first year preaching class in seminary, Dr. Reidenauer, an imposing figure, not to mention that he was a big Duke and NC State fan, taught us the cardinal rule of preaching. The one thing you must never, ever do, he said, is scold the scripture text. Never. Okay. So I won't, but I will tell you, that nearly every pastor I've known through the years and including today thinks that today's gospel lesson only one Sunday in the three-year lectionary assigned cycle of texts of the dishonest steward is the single most difficult text to preach on ever. And I'm not scolding, just describing honestly why so challenging. Because it makes no sense. I mean, did you listen to it? Have you read it before? If you haven't, let's look at it now. Jesus tells a story about buying people's friendship and support. Well, that's nice, isn't it? A story about a man who is unwilling to work and too proud to beg and who's been caught in all of that, so he cheats. That's what he does. And then, the most bizarre part of all, these actions are commended and encouraged by the master and seemingly by Jesus, as some kind of a lesson to us. Like things that cruelly, from time to time, rock my world or yours or our world together. It just doesn't make sense. And if all we have is face value, it's just never going to. We can see on the surface, but we can't see through. Sorry, Dr. Reidenauer. Consider this. You already know it. We are complex human beings, are we not? We don't like to be labeled and and said that we are this or that because we're more than that. And, you know, one time uh, I even said to my wife, I can read you like a book. And she said, but you don't know what page I'm on. And and, uh, so... I mean, we don't like that. We, we, we know that we are all over the place and all of us hold the capacity for incredible good and kindness and also incredible difficulty and struggle. All of us, each of us, that's just the way we are, captive to sin and cannot free ourselves. Scripture itself, folks, and this is really important, 
isn't intended, nor is it actually always literal and simple, because we aren't simple and literal. And made in the image of God, God honors us more highly than that, than to give us such simple and literal things all the time. The God who in Christ is doing a new thing is certainly neither static nor understandable always. And God's knowledge and sense of what may happen or what God may bring out of it is beyond our ability to grasp incredibly all the time. So I was in a meeting not too long ago. It wasn't a church meeting, which is somewhat rare for me, but the presenter was talking and giving the presentation when someone's phone started vibrating and ringing. That's never happened in a meeting you've been in, has it? Watch, it'll happen right here. Um, a guy says, sorry, it's, it's mine. Should I answer it? The instructor sarcastically replies, oh no, uh, please answer. We'll all wait. And the dude does. <laughs> Unbelievable. Except it's not, because you've probably seen that too, haven't you? Having a loud conversation, a personal conversation, right there in front of all of us in the workshop. Mr. Phone conversation is obliviously jabbering away until finally he looks up and says, uh, yeah, I know. Um, hey, can I call you later? Everybody's staring at me. Duh. See, isn't that a problem with sarcasm? Not everybody gets it all the time. Well, there are other problems with sarcasm, but... Sometimes we use it, sometimes we receive it, but one of the problems is that not everybody understands and is on board, seeing and hearing at face value, which is what I'm convinced in the complexity of who we are and Jesus in the incarnate self as a human being is doing in telling this parable. He's being sarcastic. I'm, I'm not kidding. Listen. Listen again. The Pharisees have been paying attention. The context is always huge, isn't it? The context is always huge because at the end of chapter 14 of Luke's gospel, in the beginning of chapter 15, we hear that the Pharisees are just waiting to pounce, just to jump on him because he's threatening their control of the religious entities and establishment and so on and so forth. And so they are now trying to nail him in quite a literal sense for saying or implying that it's okay to hang out with uh, tax collectors and sinners, for instance, those people, those undesirables. You can't do that. That's not the way we do it. And your disciples do it and you do it. Those Pharisees are the ones that all of chapter 15 that comes right before this. Stick with me. Chapter 15 is the lost chapter. Lost sheep, leave the 99, lost coin, sweep the house, lots of rejoicing, lost son or prodigal son or loving father or whatever you call it. Last week we had two of those. We had the, the sheep and the coin. Uh, the, the prodigal son piece happens uh, in scripture next chronologically, but we have it during Lent as part of, uh, as part of our lectionary. Uh, and then they skip over this week to chapter 16, but the Pharisees are still there listening and Jesus is telling this really to them. And he's getting a little snippy with them. Is that okay? Can Jesus be a little snippy? I, I, I think so. Is, is Jesus a human being? He's frustrated with them and he's trying to make a point to those who are following him. But it's like he is saying, and if you read even in the Greek, it somewhat reads this way. Sure, go ahead and make 
friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth. I'm sure they'll welcome you into their eternal homes. Not. Or, that's right, go ahead, try that out, and let me know how that works out for you. You see? And then Jesus dials all the way back to the first commandment, which probably we all know that if the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, if we got that one right, we probably wouldn't need the other nine, and then all the ones in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and so on and so forth, or the things that Jesus says. No other gods before me. Jesus is saying you're lying and you're cheating and your laziness you're, to serve the God of wealth or the God of rules will do you no good. Only one true God will. A person cannot serve two masters. Or you can have multiple allegiances, right? But not in the ultimate sense. It's about priorities and what it is, who it is that we're worshiping. Are we worshiping an institution, a political party, a sports franchise, America, a leader, an image, our sinful selves? I mean, you can fill in the blanks for yourself. And Jesus is saying pretty clearly toward the end of this particular text, it's time to reprioritize Pharisees and disciples and all of you in the future who, who will hear this, in this life and in the next, it's only with God that we might have a hopeful future, the God revealed to us in Christ. Not as judgment, mind you. This isn't judgment at all. We could hear it as law, but what Jesus is saying is, look, I can tell you how it's not going to work well for you. I can tell you how it is going to work well for you. You serve these gods, it might go okay for a while. But ultimately and eventually, you're going to need to come back to the God revealed in Christ. That's the key for living abundantly and for healing from whatever it is that might have distracted us or thrown us into turmoil and confusion. Not putting ultimate faith in any person, not me, not you, not anybody, not any denomination, but only as the reformers shouted in the 16th century when things got rough for the ones who dared question the religious establishment of that day. Ad fontes, back to the font, back to the source, back to the basics. And the basics are Jesus incarnate, living life as a humble servant and showing us the way dying and rising to claim us into that promise as precious children and that we hang on to for dear life as the storms rage around us because it's all we have and it is the way toward hope. And then Jesus shows us in Luke's gospel in particular some really specific ways of how we live that out, doesn't he? I mean, it's pretty clear in Luke's gospel. The way we honor Jesus and live in that way is to include the marginalized and the victim and the hurting and the least of these in Christ. Those two words, in Christ. That's our mantra, our core value, our core motivator, our pebble in the pond that is our baptism from whom all of our ripples emanate in Christ as a hopeful way. And to the extent that some other pebble is competing that's when we're going to run into trouble, isn't it? It's where we do run into trouble. I run into trouble. You do. We all do. In good times, which St. John's has enjoyed plenty, 
and will again, will again. And in crisis, which we all in our humanity have to endure because of that sin that you and I and all of us carry, but always in Christ, with Christ, loving and accompanying and guiding us and beckoning us into Christ's embrace. I also want to say that there is a season, like ancient Hebrew wisdom knew in Ecclesiastes and other places, to look way down the road and be in a strategic plan and do all of these things. And we'll do all of that again. But not today. <laughs> not this day and probably not next week. Um, what we're called to do right now is not look too far down that road because, frankly, it's too overwhelming on so many levels, is it not? <laughs> uh, but to take little steps. Why? Because little steps matter. Like our grandson Nathaniel in Durham, who about a month ago started walking and toddles a bit and then falls down, but gets back up and toddles a little more and falls again. That's kind of where we are right now. I think that's the hopeful place where we are right now, because he's getting better every time, and we're moving along. Because little things matter a lot and grow into bigger things. Even now, in a vortex of what will seemingly never make sense, in Christ, promising us healing and hope. May we follow. Amen.